0: Hi, my name is Ann Zeilman, and our text today is Matthew 22:1 1-14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Everybody,
1: very nice to be with you guys. Uh, thank you, Anne, for the reading. Thank you, Tyson, for the introduction. That was that was really funny, <laughs> and very kind. Uh, it it really is. Uh, it's great to be back with you guys. Very stoked. Um, big thank you uh, to all of you and to the vision team in particular, uh, affording us the staff some extra time off this summer. It has been a a pretty unusual and chaotic couple of years of leadership and so I appreciate the added time to catch breath and uh, and gear back up to be here so thank you very much everybody for that uh, hey a piece of news if you missed this it went out in the newsletter this week but a tremendous answered prayer the Barbosa family got their visas this past week so exciting so man this has been a journey and uh, Just to to refresh you, if you've forgotten some of the details, there's been a lot of twists and turns, or if you don't know the story. uh, So we've been praying for several years that perhaps our next church plant could be a church plant among immigrants here in Southern California. And we kind of thought that meant a Spanish-speaking church. uh, Through God's doing, it ended up being a Brazilian church, a Portuguese-speaking church. And we uh, brought in the folks for that, and they immediately ran into just titanic visa problems, thought they were going to be deported, all this craziness, the church is down in the Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa area, and they weren't able to move there, they weren't able to secure an apartment there, they ended up having to live here in Torrance and commute there to do their work over this this past, gosh, however long it's been now. Uh, but, uh, amazingly, in God's providence, the thing that resulted from that was a second church plant, as they've met all these Brazilians here in Torrance, where they were forced to live, and have started a second Brazilian church here in Torrance. So uh, it was interesting. I was at their first service uh, in this room some weeks back. And uh, (laughs) really cool, meeting all of these Brazilians who all they could talk about was all the other Brazilians they know up and down the California coast. How soon, they're asking, will we be planting churches in those places? How soon, people? Let's pray for that, yes? Uh, God is really good really faithful we've we started this church praying that we could be a place that plants a lot of churches and God has always been so faithful to answer that prayer it certainly was the leading of his spirit to that led us to pray that in the first place and it's been his leading to continue to bless us down that path so we praise God for that Uh, hey and before I forget so the kids are in the service this morning so kids who are here good morning It's very nice to see you. Give me a little four-fingered wave, if you would. Show me four. Thank you. No more than that. Four only. Uh, So in your packet, there is a coloring sheet there with a big dinner plate on it. So this is what you were to do this morning. So draw on that picture what you would like, if you were going to a feast, what would you like to eat? And if you give that to Pastor Cameron after the service, he will give you a special surprise. And that surprise is he's going to cook for you whatever you draw on that picture. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> that would be a surprise for him. But there is a surprise for you. So, uh, well, hey, let's, uh, let's pray and let's look at the scripture this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, because you are good, because you love us. As your word says, your mercies endure forever. They never run out. We thank you, God, for the way that you meet us in the midst of of all the trials, uh, all the difficulties of life. You're still there. You're always faithful. God, would you just increase our trust in you and who you are, in your goodness towards us, Uh, empower us by your Holy Spirit to follow you well. And God, we pray this morning as we worship you together in song and in scripture and at your table, we pray that you would meet us in that that you would be glorified, and that we, your people, would be strengthened. Uh, we give you thanks, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're in Matthew 22. We are back in our series on stories that Jesus told, the parables, and the wedding feast. Uh, this, this is quite a parable. Now, I love how this, this focuses just on the reception part of the wedding, right? On the eating part of the wedding and whether you're a person who loves weddings or not Chances are you really like the eating part? Everybody loves the banquet part of the wedding everyone's favorite we might say uh, the, the year that Samantha and I got married uh, We were kind of amidst just this flood of friends of ours and folks who were, were getting married that year also, I was was pretty newly a pastor at that point so uh, I was doing some of these weddings, but that year we had 14 weddings that we were either in or I presided over, 14 weddings. So a big chunk of the year was spent at wedding banquets, and we, uh, uh, we made up a little game on our way to these places called Guess the Chicken, right? What are we going to be eating at this particular wedding reception? And, and at that at that time it was just all about chicken. and It was either mushroom chicken or cordon bleu, or I think there were one or two others that you could pretty reliably count on. That's what people were having at their weddings those days. There was one wedding in there, very unique. Uh, wedding was in a park, bride and groom, barefoot, and the uh, very, very casual, in other words. And the cake was a working volcano cake. It actually like erupted lava, and then they cut it. It was fabulous. It was a wonderful, wonderful little, little wedding surprise. These are always good. Next week, uh, next, uh, next weekend, actually, I get to do a vow renewal for a couple that was, was, gosh, they were part of this church in the first year of this church. Wedding was on the rope, or marriage was on the ropes. Didn't think they were going to make it, uh, but they did. God came through. They're renewing their vows for their 20-year anniversary as a couple, and I was communicating with, this, with them this last week. Uh, importantly about what am I supposed to wear to this. This is a student high wedding, and gloriously they responded, no, you can come in sandals. Yes. (laughs) And then even better news than that, continue to say, and we'll be eating street tacos. (laughs) The cuisine of heaven (laughs) at a wedding banquet. So that's the setting for this parable. Uh, The parable itself, it's in this kind of place of joy, but it leaves its hearers with a lot of mixed feelings. And even as Anne was reading it, you may have experienced a little bit of this. Uh, On the one hand, uh, this parable points to this king. It points to God, who's represented in the parable as this king, God's radical inclusion of all people, right? The king in the parable is not just about the special people. Right? He goes out into the streets and he brings in everybody to this feast, the good and the bad, it says. He brings them all in. And we love this. We see this in the Gospels as we read about Jesus and how he was all about the sinners. Right? He's all about kind of the losers of society, those who be deemed the most sinful, those who are the most beat up, those who, for whatever reason, were excluded from sort of the ordinary worship of God, be that because of a physical disability, or be that because of being born a woman, or be that because they were born a Gentile, they were outside the the Israelite people, Uh, be that because of their reputations. He went after those who were kind of the most notorious sinners, and to all of them, Jesus says, come and follow me. The kingdom of heaven is available And we love that. We are all about that message of inclusion in our day and age. It rings true with us, and we're like, yes, sign me up. I'm all in. But on the other hand, we see also in the ministry of Jesus, and we see in this parable, uh, this, this other part, and that's that the parable speaks of judgment, that the invitation is for all. But as we see in the story, not everyone gets in. Some refuse to come to the banquet. Others are there and they're escorted out as wedding crashers. They're told you can't stay. And that part of it, that part gets pretty uncomfortable. A God who includes, a God who's always scooping us in, that is great. But a God who judges, we shrink back when it comes to that part. A God who holds us, to standards of righteousness, and demanding standards of righteousness at that. A God who accepts us as we are, but is not content to leave us that way, who wants to change us. That that goes against the grain of the cultural narrative that we all swim in, and we're challenged by that. Right, The dominant narrative that we live in says, if you accept me, you cannot change me. You must take me exactly as I am. And if you want to change me, even in part, then you do not accept me. And this parable reveals something different about God. A God who is all at once entirely accepting, who goes out and chases down, and his love is boundless, and it seeks us out. But it is a love that will not leave us unchanged. And to receive the God of Jesus means receiving both of these truths, difficult as they can be at times, to hold it together. Uh, and it, it's, it's not just us that struggle with this. We, we see with those that Jesus was speaking this parable to. He's telling the story because it's a difficulty for them as well. It's a warning, not in a threatening sense, but in a loving sense. A warning that says you could miss out on God's invitation if you're not careful. You could miss what God is doing and not enter into the joy that he promises. And so, so this invitation to the wedding feast and the warnings that come with it, how, how would that happen? How would we miss God's invitation to us? And Jesus highlights three dangers here, three ways that we could miss what God is doing, miss the grace that he is extending to us. The first one is this. The first danger is that we miss God's invitation, or we risk missing it, if we allow our religion to become bigger than our God. If our religion becomes bigger than our God, then we miss the invitation that God has for us. The parable starts like this. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. So it's the king. The king is the inviter. He throws this banquet. It's a celebration of his son. And it includes this feast. And the the invitees refuse to be part of it. Why in the world, we wonder? Why in the world, when you are being offered a -a once-in-a-lifetime invitation, would you refuse to come? It's not an exact parallel, but maybe it's about as close as we can get. Imagine that you're sitting at home and you're minding your own business and you get a call from the White House. (laughs) And the president says to you, we went to fly you to Washington we're having the celebration. Dignitaries from around the world are coming. They're going to be there. Pretend for giggles. It's your favorite president inviting you. It's not any president. It's it is the one that you actually like. And he says, "You come and be part of this feast. Be part of the banquet. You got to do this thing." And you say, "No, no, maybe not. Maybe not." And more than that, in this parable, the the tense of the verb here indicates it's an ongoing refusal. Uh, there is an ongoing stubbornness to say yes that the invitation, uh, to the invitation that is being given. And in addition to that, it's more than a good meal that you're missing out on if if you're refusing this invite from the king. right? It's different than when an acquaintance calls you up and says, hey, you want to come over and barbecue? And you might feel like, ah, I don't know you that well, do I want to oh, mm, it's not in that category. When the king, in that culture, when the king invites you to come, you have to come. I mean, yeah, it's an invitation, but it's a little more than that. And to snub the king is is an expression of disloyalty. In a shame-honor culture like that one, to refuse the king's invitation would be to dishonor the king. It's Almost a declaration of revolt, Uh, a, a declaration that you are unwilling to be part of that king's regime, treason in some ways. So it's not just missing out. It's not just missing out on a good party. You would be putting your life in danger by refusing this. So this is the choice, right? You've got a great party on the one hand and the king's wrath on the other. Great party, king's wrath, great party, king's wrath. Seems like a no-brainer, but in the story, the people say no. And you have to imagine the, the original hearers hearing this and just mouths open going, What? Why in the world would anybody refuse this? Now here's what's happening. The immediate context for this parable that Jesus is telling It's about the people of Israel, and it's a commentary on their history. And if you go back, we're in chapter 22. If you go back into chapter 21, this is actually the fourth parable in a row that's told making the same point, talking about the historic people of Israel and their leaders in particular, and and how over and over again God invites them to come deeper into relationship with him, and they refuse how over and over again he sends them prophets and messengers to say, hey, God made this covenant with you, and you've departed from this covenant. You've got to come back to it. And they refuse. And as Jesus alludes to here, sometimes they take it out on the messengers themselves, and the prophets are killed, and now now it's, it's come down to the son has been sent by the king, and the son is the one for whom this party is being thrown. And the question is lingering over the Jewish leaders, will you accept this invitation from God or not? And the irony in all this, and the sobering part, I think for you and I, as we think about this, the irony is that if you had asked the people who are hearing, and you actually see this in the dialogue in the gospels that Jesus has with the religious leaders. If you were to ask them, are you rejecting God's work in your life, They would say, of course we're not. We're incredibly religious people. And they were, and the Jews stood out as incredibly devout among ancient peoples. They were not just a little religious, they were hyper-religious. But Jesus keeps poking them on this and saying, in some ways, yes, but no. Their religion, you could say, had grown to a point where it eclipsed God. God became unnecessary in their religion. Uh, Let me explain kind of what I mean and how that happened. Here's where primarily they went wrong and you see this as you read through the Old Testament. Uh, The Israelite people had a terrible habit of starting by accepting God's word. As God revealed himself to them, they received it, they received it with joy but then over time, their listening became selective. And those, those parts of the covenant that God called them to, that they liked, they, they embraced those, and they held on to those, and they elevated those, and they talked about those, and they sang songs about those. But those parts of God's revelation that were more distasteful to them were downplayed and dismissed and sometimes cast aside and ignored. And over time, what happened to them was their understanding of what it meant to be a follower of God, their understanding of their own religion became hardened around their preferences and calloused to their non-preferences. And God, as he revealed himself, became secondary in their pursuit of God. It's ironic, isn't it? their religiosity actually became a barrier to God. And Jesus, you see this over and over again in his dialogue with the Pharisees in particular, but also another religious group, the Sadducees. Uh, The religious leaders, they are in an uproar over Jesus because they don't like the company he keeps. Uh, They're not a big fan of the sinful people that he is bringing around him, that he is befriending, that he's calling and inviting to follow him. They're not appreciating his interpretation of God's law, uh, his majoring on things that they are not particularly excited about, and minoring on things that they are particularly excited about. Uh, They aren't fond of his embrace of the Gentiles, of people who are not Jewish. The list goes on. But here's the irony. The irony is that all of these things that Jesus are putting there in front of the Jewish leaders, all these things he is putting out there, they're all in the Old Testament. None of these are new. I mean, some are, are they're brought with a different emphasis or different packaging, or they're fulfilled in a different way. But none of these are new. They're all right there. The folks just didn't have the eyes to see it. Uh, just to take one example, the Gentiles, right? Non-Jewish people being accepted into God's community. So you look at this, and it goes back so deep into the Old Testament. It was so difficult for Jews in Jesus' time to accept this, but it, it goes all the way back. I mean, even further than this, but just if you start at Abraham, if you start at, at his children, the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel that would be his grandchildren, Two of those 12 tribes have a non-Jewish mother. Gentiles are in the mix, even in the formation of the people of Israel. Moses, the great deliverer, who brings them out of slavery. Moses is married to a Gentile woman, and then later a second one, one a Middle Eastern non-Jewish woman, and the second one an African woman. When you get a little further and you have King David, Uh, the forerunner of the Messiah, all the the people of Jesus' day expected rightly that the Messiah was going to come as a descendant of King David. Well, King David, his grandmother, was a Gentile. Uh, And then, of course, the prophets. Uh, the, The prophets again and again point out that God's work is not limited to this one people. It's going to encompass all the peoples of the earth. But, friends, catch this. It was right there all along. But they didn't have eyes to see it. Why? Because their religion had gotten bigger than God. What God actually said, what God revealed, became less important than the systems that they had built up around what they expected God to be. And what they, in a sense, were allowing him to be and to do in his lives Uh, in their lives as he worked with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The real danger in this, and it's a danger that I think we need to identify with closely as those who are, uh, I can call you this, those are religious people, you're in church, so I'll assume that's the case. They didn't realize that they were rejecting God. Those who are irreligious typically know it. Those of us who are religious, it's easier for us to miss. But they had gotten to a place where the things that they had built up around what it meant to be a follower of God became bigger than God himself. Mm -hmm. Are there ways that we do this as well? Sure, this is a chief danger for all religious people. if we have a faith that is not deeply informed by the word of God if we are not allowing God to speak to us if we are not seeking out his counsel then we will almost certainly fall into a place where bit by bit our religion becomes just the product of those things we most want to emphasize and the lessening of those things that we would prefer not to emphasize And think about what this means in terms of the king's invitation. We could find ourselves in a position where we think we are saying yes to the king, but in essence we're saying something more along the lines of, yes, I want to come, but I'll bring my own food. Yes, I will come, but it's going to have to look this way. Uh, Another way we've talked about here that we, we sometimes fall into this, this trap of making our religion bigger than God is when we take a biblical concept like love or like justice, but rather than letting the scriptures define what love means in God's terms or what justice means in God's terms. We take that thing and we fill it up with definitions from our own culture and our own preferences. We keep the title, right? The box still says love, the box still says justice, but the contents have changed entirely. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're still following God, when in fact all we're doing is building our own religion and baptizing it as something that is Christian. And so doing our religion becomes bigger than God. Friends, we need to stop and ask, is God defining my faith or am I? Am I more connected to the traditions I've inherited? Am I more connected to the cultural winds of my day than I am to what God actually says about what it means to follow him? We run the danger of missing God's invitation anytime we let our religion get bigger than God? Uh, second second thing Jesus says here about these dangers we are in danger of missing God's invitation if we're more interested in our pursuits than in God's verse 4 it says then he sent some more servants and said tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner my oxen and fat cattle have been butchered and everything is ready come to the wedding banquet but they paid no attention And went off, one to his field, another to his business. So here in the story, there's sort of another level of grace. right? We have these people who have refused the king's invitation. He said, come to the wedding banquet of my son. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And again, it was kind of an ongoing refusal. But the king ups the ante. And he sends the invitation again. He says, okay, I know you didn't want to come, but now the food is ready. And like special bonus, he sends a copy of the menu, right? Swing the deal a little bit. We've got ox, we've got cattle. Who doesn't love a good ox? Come on. <laughs> Says, we have cooked meat over fire. It's ready to go. Let's do this thing. And they still refused to come. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. They couldn't be bothered. Even though, no, no doubt, in this culture where poverty reigned, this was, this was food they might not ever see again in their lifetime. I mean, a commoner, you go to a commoner's wedding, and maybe there will be a goat you know, that people eat together. Nothing against goats. I love me a good goat. But the king is promising beef, the king of all meats. And they refuse. They couldn't be bothered. We have important matters to tend to. My field needs looking after. My business needs looking after. They are invited to the party of all parties but the reaction is I need to wash my hair. I've got to bathe my cat. I can't be bothered with these other things. So for them rather than seeing the invitation from the king as a blessing, they see it as a bother, as an interruption to life, rather than an invite to life itself. Let's stay on the food thing for a moment, shall we? We're all going to leave super hungry today, <laughs> just thinking about all these foodie kind of things. But uh, <clears throat> So growing up, uh, where I did, we didn't have a lot of of uh, very diverse food options and whatnot, but my family liked Chinese food. It was the only Asian food I ever ate growing up, was Chinese food, and by Chinese food I pretty much mean sweet and sour chicken, <laughs> right? That's that was it. I have since been informed that that may not be the pinnacle of what authentic Chinese food is, but as a kid I had no idea. Sweet and sour chicken, and it was glorious. Now in college. I got introduced to something which I didn't take to be Asian food, I just took it to be college food. But it was this marvelous creation known as Top Ramen. (laughs) Right? There's a chance that you ate this in college as well. It was like 19 cents for a package of ramen. Granted, they weren't real substantive, you needed a couple, but still on a college budget, this was great. It didn't really taste like anything in particular except salt, but you know, it worked. Top Ramen, and I was like, okay, I can do this. And you found ways over time to spice this up, right? You could add a little hot sauce to it, and that would, that would make it a little more interesting, or throw in some frozen peas and carrots from that bag in the back of my freezer if I wanted it to be a little different, and I wanted to convince myself that it was maybe healthy. It wasn't, but <laughs> Top Ramen. Now, I did not know, this is a true confession, I did not know until some time later that ramen was actually a thing outside of top ramen. Like, I did not know about the glories of the dish that is ramen until sometime later when a Japanese friend invited me to go out for ramen. And at first I was like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> ramen is not great. 19 cents. It tastes like salt. But being a polite friend, I went. And it forever changed my life. (laughs) So much flavor. It's like a party in your mouth. I had no idea how glorious ramen was. Now, some years after that, this was just a few years back, but uh, I got to go and do some speaking stuff in Japan. Super, super fun. And uh, and Joel D'Amico came with me. He was doing worship stuff with me. And Joel's a total foodie, and, and we're like getting on the airplane, and Joel's like, okay, I've got a plan. <laughs> I'm like, talk to me, brother. What do you got? He's like, in Japan, there are four regional types of ramen. And he's, he draws it out for me on a napkin, right? He's like, we can go here, 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 and here. Our goal is to get all four kinds of ramen in their regions, and we did. It was glorious. but let's backtrack to that invitation. What if when my friend's invitation came, I had no interest in going with him because I had already discovered everything I needed to know about ramen, and so I refused his, his invitation. What if I was so, so preoccupied with the various ways that I'm able to prepare my ramen with the frozen vegetables I can drop in there, with the introduction of a little hot sauce, what if I missed the invitation because I was so focused on these other things? I would never have experienced the flavorful goodness that is ramen in all of its wonderful varieties. If I was in a place where I couldn't be bothered to respond to that invitation, how much would have been missed? And I wonder, friends, if we're being really honest, how many of us see God as a father? As, as one who is an interruption? There's so much in life that we are wanting to pursue, so many of our personal projects that we are chasing down, and things that we want to have happen in our careers, or our families and our friendships Uh, and our dating relationships, whatever it might be, that God always seems to be getting in the way of. If we see God as a bother and not an enhancement to the life that we are seeking to live, we run the risk of missing the invitation that he gives to us. Uh, Do you remember this? This is from the parable of the sower. We started our series in the parables with this and said that this parable tends to be the key to all the others, but remember this line from Jesus. It's Luke chapter 8, verse 14. It says, The seed, that is God's word, that fell among thorns, stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Is that us or what? But the truth is, our preoccupation with these things, with chasing the things that we believe we need most in this life, become at times our biggest barrier to deeper relationship with God. He invites us into more grace. He invites us to go deeper with him, and we miss it. Not because we don't want God. We just want to keep him over there where he's not always messing with our plans. But in reality, in reality, we miss the invitation when we do this. Friends, to come to the wedding feast, to enter into what God has for us, requires a choice. A choice to put him first, even in the midst of life's preoccupations. A choice to say, I will place you at the center and that you and your will comes first. And these other things, I will build those around you. And his promise, friends, we dare not forget it. His promise is that when we seek him first, these other things that we seek, Jesus says, these will be added to you as well. Put me first, he says, and the other things will fall into place. What about you, friend? What will your choice be? Uh, That's two. This is the third danger that Jesus points us towards in this parable. It's that we run the risk of missing God's invitation if we insist on coming on our own terms. Verse 11, it says, but when the king came, To see the guest, he noticed the man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Ah, Whoa. Now this is the part of the parable for me, maybe it is for you, where kind of stop and go, okay, yeah, this was kind of hard, but now it's like, oof, it's getting spicy here. Now, what's up with the wedding clothes? And with this reaction by the king that's as strong as we see here. Right? On on first blush I read this and it, it seems unfair. Right? Why would a person be condemned who just got invited to a wedding and they maybe weren't planning on coming in the first place and you know, who knows their circumstance to even have good clothes. What's going on? Why, why this reaction? What is this about? And the language here, you know the, the darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is the language that Jesus uses for hell when he's talking about heaven and hell. So it's, this is strong stuff. And Bible scholars, there's a couple different ways that they, they tea the, tease this out. Some see this as a difference between clean clothes and dirty clothes. It's a person who shows up to the wedding, not in in something nice you would wear to a wedding, but in the, the dirty clothes that they would wear as they're coming in from the field. Uh, others, and of course, I mean, obviously to us, that would be quite a snub if the king invites you and that's the way that you show up. You're making a statement to that king about what you think about him and his invitation. Uh, the other option the Bible scholars look at is, uh, is interesting too, and the ancient Near East culture Uh, There was a custom there where if the host of uh, a meal or the host of a wedding was particularly wealthy, they would actually provide the clothes. You would come to the wedding, you'd come to the feast, and they would give you special wedding clothes that you would wear uh, for this event. And Kind of the idea is everybody comes looking good, right? And you do this at, at the host's expense. This is something that he does for the guests. Uh, either option on this sort of leads us to the same place, though. And that's to accept God's invitation of grace. It means we have to come on his terms, not on our own. We have to come to him, not as we would want to come, but come to him as he would have us come. And this fits, this picture of the clothing, this fits with how the Bible talks about sin and Righteousness. Jesus is tapping into a metaphor here that shows up in the Old Testament prophets and then comes up repeatedly in the New Testament writers. They talk about putting on Christ, like putting on new clothes, and and shows up even in in the book of Revelation. Uh, This this idea that God is the one who will clothe us. i want to show you just a couple of these. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So the idea here being, Isaiah is talking about our own sinfulness and our attempts to clean ourselves up, our attempts to make ourselves righteous. Well, even those fall short. Even the most righteous things that we would do still are not the equivalent of good, clean clothes. Uh, Elsewhere in Isaiah, it says this, he writes, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So here is a picture of, of the host, in essence, Clothing the guests. And the garment, the clothes that are provided our salvation, it is righteousness. And the scriptures talk about Jesus in this way. That our righteousness or our attempts at righteousness are never enough. They cannot bring us favor with God. But Jesus provides our righteousness. When we put our trust in him, what happens there is that his righteousness becomes our own. We put it on like a new set of clothes. Uh, Clothes that we wouldn't be able to provide for ourselves. Mm -hmm. When we say to God, yes, I accept the invitation, but we follow that with it's got to come my way. It has to come on my terms. It's more than us just insulting the host. We are suggesting to God an impossibility that we would somehow be able to provide what we need to stand in his presence when only Jesus is able to do that. A bunch of New Testament references to this as well but I want to skip right to the end to the book of Revelation and, and hear John in his vision picks up on these words from the prophets and these words from Jesus in this parable. And listen to how he describes this picture of heaven. He says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. There's that image again of heaven as a wedding. The wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then he tells us what this means, these new clothes. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words. The clothes we find ourselves wearing at the end are described here as righteous acts. Love, truth, mercy, justice. Friends, if we we don't wear these, we're showing an essence that we don't really have an interest at being at the king's party. Again, the good news here is we don't have to provide these ourselves. Christ provides what we need for us. We must receive it from him. We have to say yes. And then we have to live in those things. We can't say yes to the party and then switch out of those clothes and put on the ones we had before. To say yes to the king means saying yes to the things he's wanting to do in us, to the new clothing that he would have us wear. Uh, Friends, when we fail to do this, when we say to God, sure, I'll come, but we insist on our own terms. Say, God, I'll come, but it's got to look this way. We're going to need to redefine this and kind of rejigger that. We're going to have to make it look the way I want it to look. The king's response to us is no. That's not what it means to accept invitation. Really, if you think about it, in that case, what we're saying yes to is not God, we're saying yes to ourselves and asking God to baptize our efforts. Mm-hmm. Friends, here is my reality and I think it's yours too. I would like to think, most of the time, that living a life of relative goodness puts me on the A-list, that makes me a good prospect to be invited into God's grace. The reality is, I am on the street, not aware that there's a party at all, and I won't get in unless the God of heaven comes and says, I'm taking the good and the bad, come on. You can be part of this too. The temptation is to think that living a life of relative goodness equips me for living in the presence of God. But reality is, I'm underdressed. Reality is, when I show up in my own strength and my own power and my own justifications for what I'm doing, I'm showing up in dirty clothes, and I need Christ himself. To clothe me. I need the grace of God to find me, to bring me in, and to clean me up. Is that you too? The scriptures tell us that is where we all start, and to receive the invitation of the king means that we have to be honest about that. Friends, when we come to the communion table, That is precisely the confession that we make. We come to the table of the Lord realizing that there is an invitation. That the God of heaven has looked at us and said, yes, you, I want you at my table. Come and be part of what I am doing. But we're also acknowledging that we come to that table needing to be cleansed. Needing the blood of Christ to wash away our sins. Coming acknowledging that our clothes are dirty and we need the work of Christ to come and wrap around us and to make us clean. All that we declare at the table of Christ. And I want to invite you to that table this morning. As we worship, if that is a confession that you can make that Christ has redeemed me, that Christ invites me to be forgiven, to enter into his heavenly kingdom. If that is what you want, then the communion table is for you. As we come to the table, we come first confessing our sins and then reminding ourselves of what Christ has done. This is our confession. Make this your prayer this morning, would you? Most merciful God, And friends, to this confession of sins, we add that for all those who have received Christ's work for them, these words of pardon, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and hear this word to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The table reminds us of this truth. Jesus died and rose again. And in that he offers forgiveness and new life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Let's receive it together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, blessed it, and he divided it among his disciples, saying to them, This is my blood, the new covenant, being shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Let's receive it together. Can I invite all of you to stand as we pray and as we continue to worship God together.